Ronin Rescue Cast, podcast number five. Helmets, investigations, some principles, and some risk tolerance. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. We're pleased to have you. Ronin's comprised of a bunch of slightly deranged individuals that wander the globe in search of that elusive rescue unicorn. We compete, we train, we do rescue work. We're looking for that end-all, be-all system. You know, the one, the one that's going to do everything for you. We haven't found it yet, but we found a bunch of interesting things along the way, and we just wanted to share that with all of you out there. Podcast number five. Once again, I can't believe we're actually at five. Sorry for some of the delays. We were trying to get these out every couple of weeks, and it's been about a month. It's been a heck of a busy summer for us with the... uh, with the forest fire situation in BC, we've had a lot of staff deploy to a lot of different areas. We've got some of our full-time staff that are still serving reservists that have been deployed up there. Big shout out to those guys. A couple of our full-time staff are paid on call fire. They've been deployed up there. Shout out to those guys. And of course, a lot of our part-time staff are still working full-time fire or full-time paramedics and they've been deployed up there. So a shout out to all of them and thanks to all of those folks back home. That helped out by working longer hours to make up for those shifts. So now it's finally raining in Vancouver. I'm actually sitting in Fernie today for the mine rescue competition. Big shout out to Green Hills. Do well today, boys. Uh, Always great to come up here and see how other people are doing business. So once again, we're going to be chatting today. We're going to be looking at some helmets. We're going to be talking a little bit about risk tolerance. We're going to talk a little bit about principles. And we're going to look at a couple of investigations so first of all, with the helmets, like, why am I talking about helmets? I'm a bit of a kit guy. You know, everybody that knows me knows I've got a backpack and a wristwatch assess, uh, obsession. And now we'll chat a little bit about helmets. So a couple different styles of helmets. You've got your climbing helmets and you've got your rescue helmets. And the big difference is, is the climbing helmets are primarily the UIA helmets. And your rescue helmets, for us, pretty much have to have some CSA sort of standard on them. Although we can get away with ANSI, obviously. But yeah, this is the thing. is We have to have that stamp on it. So when we look at our climbing helmets. They're generally a little bit lighter. And I'm going to put the big caveat out there. Or a couple big caveats out there. I get a lot of these helmets for free to trial. So take that into consideration when I'm talking about these. And number two... I've got the world's smallest pea head. I'm running like a six and seven eighths fitted ball cap. So a lot of these helmets are an issue for me because I always look like I'm wearing a lampshade on my head a lot of these times with these helmets that are kicking around. So with the climbing helmets, I've uh, tried the Petzl Elios. I've worked with the Black Diamond Half Dome. And finally, I've tried the Camp Titan. The Petzl helmets... I love the guys from Petzl, their rope access gear, rocks, their helmets. For a guy with my head size, not so much. I find that I'm on the bottom end of their helmet size, and I've really obviously got to crank the helmet down so it doesn't fall off of me. And that suspension system just starts hurting. I can't wear them for eight hours a day, climbing, working, anything. It's just, it's hard on my head doing that. And if you've got a small head, it might be something worth thinking about their small helmet, one my kid used to wear, it's too small to fit me. It doesn't go that big to fit the head. So I'm not awkward kind of in-between size on those two things. Black Diamond Half Dome, that was my go-to helmet for a lot of years climbing. Worked out well. Still, though, it wasn't, uh, 
I wouldn't say that was a comfortable helmet for me a lot of the times. It was that odd size as well. Uh, Jack Perry from camp threw us up a helmet for Grimp last year. And although Grimp is a competition and we were in a climbing helmet, we can kind of get away from it or get away with it in Europe because it does meet some of the standards over there. I got to give the shout out to that Titan helmet. It is the most comfortable climbing helmet I have ever worn. We wore it for, you know, all the week of training beforehand, eight, 10 hour days. We wore it for Grimp for, uh, two 10-hour, 12-hour days there. I just finished teaching in Winnipeg for a week. I used the helmet there for a week straight, running 11, 12-hour days. Not an issue at all. It's comfortable. It's light, um, lower profile, so you're not constantly knocking the thing around. And for a climbing helmet, outstanding. I mean, as you notice, I'm using it as a rescue helmet a lot of the times as well. It's got the clips on it for your lights, what have you. It's got a good adjustment range on it. We got them for our Grimp team last year, and we're talking seven, eight guys and one girl with a whole bunch of different size heads, and it fit everybody. So good shout out to camp on that. When you're talking to your rescue helmets, like I said, we're looking at stuff that has that stamp on it, and the only two in the world that kind of have the stamp that we've been had access to, and I know there's a couple other, but we're talking the stamp of CSA or ANSI, is the Petzl Vertex Best or the Cask Plasma Series or Super Plasmas. And they're both, like I say, decent helmets. You see them a lot. Once again, I just find the Petzl with my head. I'm just on that odd size where I've got to crank it a weird way and have that suspension right on top of my head, which causes some discomfort by the end of the day. Yeah, I know, first world problems. The Super Plasma by Cask is my go-to helmet. I've been wearing that on rescues for a long time. Um, I've got one that's probably almost 10 years old. The thing's still up and running. I like it better than the newer ones. I find with the newer ones, they have this piece that articulates at the back to hold it on to the back part of your head. For me, because my head's so small, that articulating piece does interfere with any safety glasses that I have to wear on a site. And so that then starts causing me pain, which is why I'm still wearing my old one and not wearing the newer one. So once again, this thing about having a pea head starts to become an issue. Hence why I'm talking about helmets, because I know I'm not the only person in the world with a size small head. Opscore, the Opscore Fast Bump, great helmet. It comes in a small enough size that I can just wear it. I wear it a lot. Everybody out there is going, hey, wait a second, it's Opscore. It doesn't meet CSA or ANSI, and 100%, I agree with you. Sites that I can get away with it, I wear it because it is small enough and it's comfortable. That and my preference on helmets right now is the Team Wendy. The Team Wendy Xfil SAR, great helmet. I wore it for Grimp last year. Once again, Team Wendy did donate that helmet to us. I, I would, you know, I'm one of those guys. If it was crap, I'd say it's crap. I love it. It fits me 100%. It is a bit of a larger helmet, but because of the way it fits the head, you don't notice it. It's certainly a comfortable helmet. You can wear them all day. We did have some issues. One of our team members, the Lining on the inside, because of the excessive sweat at Grimp uh, last year or the year before, one of those lining pieces ended up coming out. Give Team Wendy all the kudos in the world. We mentioned it to them. They sent a whole new interior package to him to put back into that helmet. Um, for somebody that you know didn't purchase the helmet from them, they've supported us 100% on that. So, I mean, that to me is huge as well when you can get a company that's willing to stand behind their product. 
You've read some of our other blogs. There's other products we've used where I've contacted the manufacturer and said, hey, you know, I've broken your product here. And we never hear anything back. And so kudos for Team Wendy for stepping up and actually doing that. So, yeah, there's some helmets for you. Once again, Team Wendy doesn't have the CSA or the ANSI approval. Sites that we can get away without having that is where we end up running a lot of that. So move into um, investigations. But before I go into investigations, I want to talk about a couple of things here. One of them is the fact that these investigations, the two that I'm going to talk about, they've occurred because of mixing different rescue disciplines. And I'm not saying don't do that. I'm all for mixing rescue disciplines. I'm all for mixing, mixing rope disciplines. We're learning from other people's trades. We're learning from arborists in the rescue world. We're learning from rope access guys in the rescue world. Rope access guys, we're learning from arborists. We're learning from mountain climbers. I was out teaching in Winnipeg, like I said. I had Sartex on that course, uh, RCMP ERT guys. And you're learning things at Arborist, the different ways people do stuff. And it, it challenges you as an instructor to make sure that everybody's, you know, running some principles and being safe. And if they're violating principles, why? And I'm not saying don't violate principles. And I'm not saying don't use other people's disciplines. But there's a couple of items here that we're going to bring up as to reasons that you might want to, you know, make sure you're double checking those systems. And so in Ronan, there's a few principles we do try to follow. Redundant system. I think most people out there listening to this podcast go, yeah, I can understand that. Redundant system. This usually means two lines. Usually means a main and a safety. There's obviously people that we train and we deal with that do not run redundant systems. I learned on the skids and the back of a military armories on a two-rope system. Oh, yeah. Two laid ropes, double wrapped through a carabiner, and off you went. The military does not want me hanging on the bottom of that rope if something goes wrong, though. They want me on the ground so they can put the next person on that rope. So they've decided, no, we're not going to have a redundant system. They have a reason for that. The reason for not running a redundant system saying, I'm too lazy or I don't have the money to buy a safety line is not a reason. And there's a lot of gray area in between there. But for the most part, we look and we say we want a redundant system. So that means performing a critical system analysis to look for non-redundant points prior to use. And we can go as far right and as far left as you want on this. We're working with fire departments that stack rig plates because they look at it and go, rig plates and non-redundant points, so we're going to put two of them in there. You know, that's more than I personally think is required. However, I understand why they're doing it. I understand they're looking at training lowest common denominator. They want to make sure it's simple. They want to make sure it's safe. And so that's what they're doing. And that's not a good, it's not a bad. It's just one of those things where when they go through, they're making their system 100% redundant. Where other people might go, I'm not going to back up the rig plate. Or maybe I'm going to put a sling in there instead to bypass it if I want it to be redundant. And so be it. But you want to make sure when you're looking at this, you've done your critical system analysis, another principle, to make sure you've got a redundant system. At Ronan, we prefer that at least one of the systems is whistle stop and has panic hardware on it. Both systems preferably, but a lot of times you can't get that, so we'll go with at least one. I'm pretty sure everybody out there knows what we're talking about here with whistle stop and 
panic hardware, but if not, whistle stop, you know, you take your hands off, you whistle basically, you know, and everybody takes their hands off and the system catches. So you're using systems that basically auto catch should you get hit in the head with something, get shot if you're in that kind of environment. And the panic stops or the panic hardware is you're using gear that if you open it up all the way like an ID and you slam it down to the bottom, it stops. It's got panic features on it so that it overrides your ability to defeat the device and ride it to the ground. And this is why we say, you know, principle on that, maybe one of them does, not both. I prefer a rig. If I open my rig up all the way, I just ride the lightning until my safety catches. My safety, though, it's, you know, it's going to be a panic situation where it's going to catch. That's what it's designed to do. And so I say at least one of those systems, we say at least one of those systems has to do it. The other one, and this one gets a little bit you know, controversial, is rig your system so the loads do not exceed whatever your authority having jurisdictions policies are. I don't care if you're 10 to 1, I don't care if you're 8 to 1, hell, go up and be 15 to 1 if you want. If you want to go force limiting, knock yourself out. But whatever your department, whatever your organization has decided is going to be that magic number, make sure when you go through your system, it meets it. And this is where, you know, I get these guys going, oh, it has to be 10 to 1 for everything. Good luck putting any sort of deviations or change of directions in your system and meeting your 10 to 1. So be realistic about this, you know, and go out there and make sure that that's what it's doing. Whatever you've decided that number or that system should be for safety-wise, make sure it's meeting it. It's when we start, oh, well, that point doesn't necessarily meet it, but it's going to be okay. We're cheating the system, and we start getting to the point where we can get into accidents. Now, the other thing about this is risk tolerance. And risk tolerance, I don't think, is talked about enough, and I'll probably do a whole podcast on risk tolerance. You know, you look at this and you go... If, you know, work with the RCMP, for instance, or in any other police ERT teams. Now, we're chatting with them about a tension line. And a lot of the way we do tension lines is two lines. We come rope access style. That's where tension lines originally kind of came from, from my introduction to them. And, you know, some of the rescue world has gone and done some different things with that. Mothner's doing some great stuff with tension lines right now. And we said, you know, you could rig these, you get more people over the edge if you've got no anchors up top, but it gives you a lot of flexibility for anchoring. And the question came back is, do we need to use two tension lines on this? Well, that's the way we rig it for redundancy. But when you look at them, they're going over the edge on a single rope technique. So this is where you ask them, what do you want for your risk tolerance level? You could rig two lines up here, and depending on the number of people that you're putting on this thing, you may want to because of factoring in what are you using as a safety factor. Are you using force limiting? Are you using some sort of static system safety factor? Are you violating that? But at the end of the day, are you being redundant for the sake of being redundant? Because your guys are going over on single ropes. So even if you run a two-tension line system, once they go over the edge, that's still the weak point in the system. So... You know, don't be building it or overbuilding it in their case just for the sake of building it. If you're already comfortable on single rope and that's what you do as a system, there's no point trying to change it. You know, there's reasons for changing it, absolutely. When you get into loads, too sharp of angles, you know, there's a million reasons for that. 
But as long as you're rigging it right, and that's what your policies are, have your risk tolerance of your organization deal with that. Another example of this is things like, you know, your casualty collection points on your active shooter things. If you're bringing fire in in order to evacuate those people, you say to a firefighter, if you're in a building and somebody starts shooting, would you use your bailout kit and go out the window? Uh, guys would, yeah, in a heartbeat. All right, so when we put civilians in this situation, why are we so concerned about building this overly redundant multiple line system to fire them out a window in an emergency situation? If the situation's clear, yes, by all means, but you readily admit that if that was you in that situation, you'd use your bailout kit and out you'd go. So what is the difference in risk tolerance all of a sudden? The civilian that's in that casualty collection point and is in no more or no less danger than you are, yet you would rig the ropes completely different to put them out the window. And these are things where you really need to think about. What's that actual mission at that particular time that you're doing on rope? You know, what's the goal? What are the surrounding problems? What are the anchoring issues? Rope rigging is complex problem solving with ropes. That's what these things are. And every scenario is going to be different. And every scenario is going to have its own tolerance level of risk that you're going to be able to either do or not do based on that. And it's like I said, I mean, that's a whole podcast worth of risk tolerance. But it's with those couple thoughts in mind that I want to talk about these two investigations that we've looked at. And I bring them up because they're both interesting points in regards to having, you know, moving between disciplines, if you want to call it that. Now, the first one is an accident with an omni-sling. Now, for those of you that out there that don't use omni-slings, made by RSI, good piece of kit, put them in a basket. It's like an industrial daisy chain. Never use the bottom piece of webbing because it does pull about one pocket's worth of webbing through when you slow pull them. And they're rated for a 40 kilonewton load. So, I mean, when you basket these things, they're 40K and they're, they're bomber pieces of kit. A lot of industrial teams use them, seen them in a lot of different places. I think what's happened is when the fire departments use them, they're using, you know, your, your big F off beaners, your 40K and monster steelies in these things or monster aluminums in here. And nobody in the fire department really thought about three-way loading these things. You know, yeah, they'd clip them in, way you'd go, because these things, you know, they're a good inch and a half, two inches wide. So you've got, you know, three inches of material on the end of your carabiner. And, you know, the fire departments with the larger beaners, no one really gave it a second thought about clipping into those two pockets. I think as people have started taking other courses, like I said, which is totally cool. I love that. It's, it's required in our industry to make this go. I think it's, you know, you've taken it out into a wilderness environment and what's happened is, is we've gone down to like a 25 KN beaner that's a little bit smaller and went, well, this doesn't work so well with this Omni. Well, how can we fix this? Well, let's pass the tail of the Omni through that pocket where we want it and then we'll clip, still clip both of those pockets, but because they're passed through, it's a narrower profile and we're back to a non-three-way pull on our carabiner. Brilliant. You know, we're taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and we're making it work. Now, the thing with this is it requires a good tug test or a flip-over visual inspection when you're doing your critical point analysis. I have heard of three, investigated two myself, 
situations where the rigger has now gone and put the carabiner into that Omni and not grabbed both pockets. And they've done a, a light pull test on it. They haven't done a real good proof load of their system beforehand. And sure enough, you've got a mainline failure because the Omni comes out. The one in particular, um, they had the Omni as a change of direction, 90 degree change of direction on a balcony. They never did a, a fully functional test on it. I mean, I can say that with confidence because the Omni failed. So they obviously did not test it or did not inspect it to the point that they needed to. And they ended up with a mainline failure because they were running a 90. Omni came off of the anchor, line straightened up. And obviously then the safety line did its job, caught the system. Now there's a lot of things that we can look at as to why this didn't occur. You can talk about supervision. I mean, there's never the smoking gun in the accident. You know, supervision issues, obviously safety issues. Whoever rigged it, rigged it incorrectly. So there's a training issue. There is a training issue on the person who checked it because they didn't. The instructor that was there, there's an issue there because they didn't do a final check before they put their people into harm's way. You didn't proof load the system, obviously. And so there's a bunch of issues that occurred there. And it's unfortunate because this particular organization decided that, you know what, skip it. We're just not going to use Omnis anymore. Well, it's a great tool. It has value to it. I can take a 10-foot Omni on two close anchors and make two anchors out of one Omni strap. Like There's some good value to why I would use an Omni. But they've taken that tool away instead of dealing with the training issues that are, have existed and instead of you know, training their staff a little bit better in order to utilize and understand the challenges around that, they just removed it from the system. And I just want to share that where the solution, I don't feel, is removing a piece of gear from the system. There is gear that is more lean towards one place or another or one discipline or another but it's rope gear. If I can rig it and use it for slinging loads underneath a crane, there's a pretty good chance I can use it and rig it for slinging loads underneath a tripod. I mean, the same principles exist. And so these are one of those things where you want to understand the limitations of that gear. You want to know why we're rigging it the way that we're rigging it. And you want to make sure that those principles and those thought processes are passed on as how we're rigging it. Now, the other incident involved an ID. And this one's really unique. There's a lot of gear out there. You look at like your Petzl crawl. The new crawls won't fit on 12 and a half mil rope. Another one, I was teaching pitch heads the other day. Firefighter called me up a couple weeks after the course and said, hey, we can't do pitch heads. I can't get enough weight on the, the rescue sender or your Gibbs ascender or whatever mechanical rope grab you're using there to slide it down 12 and a half mil rope to do a pitch head. And of course, these are big aha moments. Ronan, we're running 11. We're doing some tests on 10 and a half for our rope. But of course, there's a lot of fire departments out there that are still running 12.5. And I'm not saying ditch your 12.5 and go to 11. But with a lot of this crossover from rope access, from other disciplines, there's obviously skills and tricks that can be done in some trades because of the rope that can't be done in others. And this brings up this next particular incident happened, you know, pretty much right in front of me. And we spent some time going through it. I spent some time observing the person that had the incident in order to ascertain kind of what happened. Now, the issue here, the person that the incident occurred with 
was a firefighter, and they're used to using a 12 and a half mil rope. Now, the IDL, your red ID, does not have the open-close plate on it like your IDS. You have to take it off of the beaner, rig it to the line, put it back in. The larger ID didn't pass the NFPA slow pull with that plastic catch in there, so they had to remove that catch and make a solid plate. No problem. Every firefighter that's out there that runs 12 and a half knows what I'm talking about with the ID. They're used to taking it off and putting it on the line. So this individual was doing a changeover, changing over from ascent into descent. Simple rope access trick or trick skill. It's done often, always. And most rope access guys, I mean, the big thing out there, work in descent. Don't work in ascent. It's as simple as rescue. So this individual climbing line, going to move over into from ascent to descent. Because he's not used to the IDS, he takes the ID out of his system. He doesn't leave it attached. The other thing I noticed is instead of rigging the ID in his hand in front of him, he kind of rigs it where his hand's at a 90, like a knife hand for all you military types out there. And when he went to put the ID back into his system, he has to twist the rope, just that, just that 190 degree pivot. And it does cause just a little twist in the rope, just a little bit. And when you're running probably your large ID, it's probably not that noticeable. In this particular scenario, just the way everything was rigged, it did cause it wanting to move back the other way. Not really a big deal on its own. The next chain of you know, incident that occurred here, we were using screw gate carabiners. This individual was used to using self-closing, self-locking carabiners. So he clips his ID, now remember he's taking it off, back into the carabiner, doesn't lock the screw gate because he's used to just, you know, bing, bang, boom. He's hanging from rope at this point. A lot of firefighters aren't used to hanging from rope 100% and doing work. You know, I'm not trying to throw that out there as a slight, but you look at a rope access tech who's hanging from rope 12 hours a day doing work, you know, a lot of times that's not the same. And that's a skill that definitely needs to be increased. And this is where you want to have this, you know, cross-pollination of, different disciplines but in this case okay he puts it on of course he's you know struggling a little bit now he's you know sweating he's hanging from rope and when it went in now the id remember i said it was 90 degrees twisted it went back to true it went back to true on a gate that was not locked opened the gate as he waited the system and of course tore that gate straight out of that carabiner Safety deployed, not a problem. Had an ASAP running high, you know, like you're supposed to in these things. Boom, ASAP caught, not a big deal. Didn't even deploy a shock absorber. Very small hit, but it goes to show that he's used to using a device that you take off of the line, put it back onto the line, clip it into yourself. He's now using a device where you can leave it attached to you and, you know, rig that line with it. And it's just that small change in disciplines and you would never think that that would be a problem but there is enough of a difference in it that sitting down and making sure that everybody understands what's going on there is important part of this task and it's one of those things where just that slight change in rope rescue rope access difference is enough to cause an incident so those are just a couple of them that have occurred and just wanted to mention that 
I'm all for, once again, going out there and cross-pollination of things. A couple arborists on that course that I was teaching, I was talking about in Winnipeg, you know, I had them do a half-hour session on some arborist work, SRT, DDRT. It's really interesting stuff. If you're running professional fire at some point, you could end up coming across an arborist in a tree. First recovery I did was an arborist in a tree. Um, you want to make sure you know how those systems work. And <clears throat> you can take a lot of stuff from their systems and put it into our systems. I'm talking the rescue world. But there's pitfalls to all these things as well. Make sure you live by your principles and make sure that you check your systems before you commit to them so that you don't end up having problems between them. So that's podcast five. We got six and seven already in the works. We'll chat with you later. Thanks for joining us.